This is episode 66 of Cinescope, and I'm from Iowa. I only work in outer space. Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the podcast today is TJ Draper to talk about one of our favorite films, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. TJ, how are you doing tonight? I am doing great, Chad. It is a long time since I've been on the mic, so it's really, it's really good to be back. In fact, the last time you were on the mic might have been on Cinescope again. I'm not positive about that, but uh... pretty pretty sure it was. My, my, I've just been focusing on other things in my life. Um, strangely enough, these podcasts, as much as I love them, they don't make me money, and uh, I'm trying to make money, Chad. So. <laughs> right, I, I definitely know that struggle. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad to have you back on the microphone. Uh, you are the one who's got me into podcasting in the first place, so it's always a pleasure to return to our familiar cadence with each other and talk about movies like we've yeah. done for several years now at this point, which is hard to believe. Yeah, it's hard to believe. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have had a hand in pushing you into your greatness, Chad, because you're really you're better at podcasting than me. So. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I'm glad that I could play a role in propelling you to stardom. <laughs> stardom <laughs> not there yet but we'll see what happens <laughs> uh, how about you reintroduce yourself remind people out there who you are before we get into our main discussion sure well um as you've already mentioned i'm tj draper i used to run a podcast and a site called movie bite and uh, the podcast was the movie bite podcast that went along with the site and we wound that down after a few years and i started a new podcast called retake um, which also really hasn't been doing anything for the last uh, three, four, five months. I'm not sure. Something like that. I'd have to look and see when our last ep- our, our, the last episode we posted was. Uh, there's There's been thoughts and plans to maybe bring, bring that back, but uh, I'm just at a stage in my life where I'm really busy with work, and, you know, that's kind of where I'm at. So it's been very difficult, but I'm, I'm you know, uh, that's me. I, I work on the web. You, you'll see me around. I do a lot of websites and stuff like that. Yeah, um, I definitely miss hearing you talking movies a little bit more often. But uh, as I said, always glad to have you back here. And uh, we just have a, a great chemistry together when we talk movies. And so... Uh, well, I mean, you like Back to the Future. I like Back to the Future. You've liked all the Star Trek I've introduced you to so far. So we're on, <laughs> we're on good terms. Yes, we are. <laughs> and I was about to say that you always, re- you always introduce me to stuff. Uh, there was a sort of running gag back when I was a co-host on the Movie Bite podcast with you where I, I had to add it to the list. I had to add it to the list. And uh, every sure time you... still has some things on it. Yeah, I'm sure there's still several. But every time you come on to Cinescope, you help me to uh, check another thing off. So we're glad to be back talking about another Star Trek movie this time. And it's kind of, sort of, two movies built into one, though our main focus is going to be on The Voyage Home. Right. Now, this is the first time that you've watched The Voyage Home, right? Right. Yeah. And, and I believe you told me you revisited Star Trek II again before watching. So basically, you watched the Holy Trilogy of Star Trek. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to rewatch Wrath of Khan, but I did go oh. back and read a synopsis, make sure I was up to terms on it. And uh, OK, OK. And then I did watch Star Trek three. So the thing to note is that Star Trek's two, three and four comprise basically an, an accidental trilogy that, that works really well together. Because they, they made Star Trek 2 and they really didn't have plans to make more, but then 3 and 4 kind of flow out of 2, and uh, they're, they're really the best, I, I taken as a whole, they're really the best that Star Trek has to offer, in my opinion. I definitely agree with that as far as how it compares to the, the Kelvin-verse, I believe it's called, the J.J. Abrams films. <laughs> um, yes. But uh, we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Let's go over the stats for this film. It was released on November 26th of 1986, so we're coming up on the 31st anniversary Mm-hmm. Uh, it was directed by Leonard Nimoy, who also directed Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, Three Men and a Baby, The Good Mother, Funny About Love, and Holy Matrimony. The script was written by Steve Meerson, Peter Crikes, Nicholas Meyer, and Harv Bennett. And the music was by a new face to the, the Star Trek world, Leonard Rosenman, who also, uh, who also composed for Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, Barry Lyndon, Bound for Glory, The Lord of the Rings, the animated film, 
1980 mm-hmm. version of The Jazz Singer and RoboCop 2. The cast features William Shatner, of course, Leonard Nimoy, Catherine Hicks, Majel Barrett, and then the rest of the crew, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takai, Walter Koenig, and Michelle Nichols. So TJ, what was your, well, I, I say first experience, what was your experience with this trilogy as a whole from Wrath of Khan, Search of Spock, or Search for Spock, and then leading into this one? Well, um... I would say that probably I I think I probably saw this film before I saw Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan just because, uh, or, or certainly if I saw Star Trek Two first I don't remember it although I can't really remember when I first saw this film either, uh, just because we had this one on VHS in the eighties <laughs> VHS what's that the kids ask um, <laughs> so we we had it on this little strip of magnetic tape that would wind over the playheads it was interesting technology uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah we had that on VHS and I wore that thing out I watched this film so many times. Um, I can't, I just, because Star Trek was basically like, I apparently I was born, I was born with it in my blood. I just don't remember the first time that I saw it. It was just always a part of me. Um, so yeah, I, I really don't know what else to say about that. And except that, uh, yeah, I mean, I've seen, I've certainly seen all three of these films a lot, but I, I think this film, Star Trek four, the wrath, uh, I'm sorry, Star Trek four, the voyage home is the one that I've seen probably the most of any Star Trek film. Okay, I mean, that's in stark contrast to me, who has still pretty minimal experience with Star Trek. My first experience was with the Abrams films, and I do like them. I know you have mixed feelings here and there, but mm-hmm. I think we both agree that the latest entry, Star Trek Beyond, was pretty pretty stellar overall. Star Trek Beyond was easily the best of the new Abramsverse films. I, I still don't think it's as good as my top three favorite original series films. But Yeah, and that's, you know. I, I haven't sat down and compared them right up against each other, but uh, I do enjoy those. I have seen a few episodes of the the original series, and I do Mm -hmm. have aspirations to eventually go and proceed through all of Star Trek. It is something I'm very interested in. It's just finding time. Um, But I have enjoyed everything I've seen through. At at this point, we we talked about the Wrath of Khan way back in episode two of Cinescope, and uh, then I watched Search for Spock last night before I watched the voyage home and i liked that as well um so as far as search for spock itself goes i thought it had a few really great moments uh like my my favorite parts were probably kirk's reaction to his son's death and Mm -hmm. then uh, well that's the standout moment in that film right right some, I mean, you know, Shatner is often maligned like for his over-the-top performances, but I felt like that was – I would say that maybe the, the, his reaction to hearing of his son's death is, is probably – spoilers for Star Trek III um, – is probably the best acting that Shatner has ever done in the Star Trek series. Just that, just that little moment, like he puts so much emotion to that, and it's his immediate reaction, like he stumbles on his own bridge, right, on the bridge he's been on for years and years and years, and he falls backwards, but then his – his immediate reaction is just like, you know, you would expect, you know, because you remember the con scream in Star Trek II, and this is more of a low key. He just sits there for a moment, and it takes him a minute to really work up that anger. Like, he's just so devastated. And that certainly is the standout moment to me from that film. When I think of Star Trek Three, I think of that moment and, and his reaction to it. Um, and and it's it really is the, the moment of the film. I also admired Bones putting himself further at risk towards the end. He's given the choice. Do you want to proceed with this this transfer? I don't remember the exact technical term, uh, but where they were moving Spock's consciousness, which was present in Bones, to Spock's regenerated body. And he said, mm-hmm. I accept the danger. I'm going through with this. Um, and it was a, a motion of friendship despite their past differences. So I, I liked that moment as well. Um and overall, I did like the film. Christopher Lloyd, as much as I like him, oh uh, was just a little <laughs> bit silly. Uh, maybe a little bit more than a little bit silly. <laughs> I love Christopher Lloyd as Krug. I, I, in fact, I feel like he didn't get quite enough screen time because it's almost he just he played that role with such relish. Like he enjoyed every second of it. And to me, like it's one of his standout performances and one that he's never remembered for, which is sad to me. But well, you know, it's he he does such a good job funny story i actually met christopher lloyd at a star trek convention so uh the the poster behind the table he was sitting at had of course doc brown on it wearing the the giant helmet and then it had him as krug as well so he he is at least somewhat remembered for that that was back in 2010 uh here in dallas and yeah that that's 
I, I knew he was involved in this film. I kind of forgot until I hit play last night, though, and all of a sudden Christopher Lloyd was on my screen. Uh, but there were a couple other story elements in the search for Spock that didn't make sense or maybe were a little bit over the top. But like I said, overall, I liked the film and I really like that this is a sort of pseudo trilogy in itself that tells a complete arc of a story. And there are things that carry through um, and that the, the characters are, are learning from based on the events of the previous film. I think that's a really cool thing uh, that even in the Kelvin verse, we don't really have that as much. They're still pretty standalone and there's not as much event based uh, growth based on their, their previous films, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely it does. Every one of those films is of the Kelvin verse is certainly standalone, as you say. Even though we have three of those new films, they're not a trilogy like Star Trek's 2, 3, and 4 are. Um, I just want to say real quick um, that there are several reasons why I wanted to talk about Star Trek 4 with you and not Star Trek 3, because Cinescope is about favorite films and, uh, and films that we love. And I don't love Star Trek 3. I like Star Trek 3, but I don't love it. Even though it's not a terrible film, it does have some unfortunate tendencies, like um, it continues an unfortunate trend of making uh, Captain slash Admiral Kirk look good by making Starfleet and the other Starfleet brass look bad. Um, it makes other captains look stupid and bad. Um, Horner's score, I think you noted this on, on Twitter the other night, Horner's score is a little bit more, it's kind of lackluster compared to what he brought to Star Trek Two. It's yeah, almost his, like he was phoning it in. His Klingon and, theme and, was real weird. It, it was a rehash of some aliens themes. Yeah, or alien aliens. Yeah, aliens themes. Uh, and you know the special effects for Genesis sometimes look a little cheap. Um, and then my biggest, you know, what my biggest complaint is, Chad. This is such a this is such a Star Trek uh, fan thing to say. Uh, the um, the original Enterprise that they're talking about, where Admiral Morrow says the Enterprise is twenty years old, Jim. Um, I'm sorry, the Enterprise is actually forty years old. It was commissioned in twenty two forty five, and this film takes place in twenty two eighty five. <laughs> FYI. Uh, <laughs> of course, of course. How how could they miss that? Agent Draper on the case. <laughs> or should I say Admiral? So, so I'm I'm such a nerd. But anyway, it is it's a good film and I, I like that Ohura finally got to do something for once. Um she really never had much to do in any of the other films or any of the rest of the series except for occasional stuff. So, and, and, you know, and I do like the film, it's fine, but I I really I'm, I'm that's enough about Star Trek 3 because I really want to talk about Star Trek 4. Well, I'll start off by saying I had no idea what direction this movie was going to go in because I, I mean, I don't have a lot of Trek experience, but I sort of know what to expect from a Star Trek experience, right? I, I well, that didn't really help you learn what to expect from this film. Oh, did not it? at all. <laughs> That's what I, I was leading <laughs> you to. All of a sudden, there's something about whales, and then they time travel, and then they all of a sudden are in the 1980s and just walking around on Earth. And there's no space battles. There's no ultimate villain. It's just these these futuristic characters that Trek fans had at this point spent 20 years watching in this futuristic setting. And now all of a sudden they're in the audience's own time. And they're, they're kind of like whales out of water. Uh, yeah. You, you might could say that <laughs> <laughs> it's so non-traditional for a Star Trek movie. And it, it's weird to say this about a Star Trek film because Star Trek is usually a refreshing experience from other sci-fi. It's a little bit more optimistic most of the time. Yeah. 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 Um, but this was a refreshing Star Trek experience for me because it was so different than anything else I had ever seen. I, I thought it was a really cool thing. And I, I, I was, again, just like last week, I watched this movie very late at night just because of crunching time together. And I was a little concerned that I might fall asleep. But because of the these weird twists and differences from other Trek material I've experienced, I was very enthralled and enjoyed every single second of it. Chad, I think Roger Ebert, in his first paragraph of his review, summed up what you're trying to say really well, and so I'm just going to quote that real quick. Sounds good. He said, um, when they finished writing the script for Star Trek IV, they must have had a lot of silly grins on their faces. This is easily the most absurd of the Star Trek stories, and yet, oddly enough, it is also the best, the funniest, and the most enjoyable <laughs> in simple human terms. I'm relieved that nothing like restraint or common sense stood in their way. <laughs> that that's perfect. <laughs> I love Ebert, and he yeah, he does so good. pretty much sum it up. That's that's it's so fun. It's a fun movie, and that that really is the the gist of it all. I think. Well, and then um, in the movie itself, this is how meta this movie gets. In the movie itself, McCoy, 
um, sums up the plot of the film like this. He says to Kirk, You're proposing that we go backwards in time, find humpback whales, then bring them forward in time, drop them off, and hope the hell they tell this probe what to go do with itself. <laughs> I mean, that's the plot of the movie right there. Yeah, that, that's, that sums it up. <laughs> uh, what other story elements here stand out to you? I actually don't have a whole lot else to say aside from how refreshing it is, but uh, is, are there any specifics here that stand out to you? Well, so um, one, one of the things that you kind of have in this general outline that, that we kind of go through whenever we do a cinescope and, you know, we can stick to it or not as, as, we, as we want to, but one of the things you ask is how has your opinion changed over time, which I think is an interesting question for me because I've never not known this film, basically. Um, and for a while, as I moved into adulthood, it kind of became my least favorite Star Trek film. And I think that happens with oversaturation of things because, like, it was the one Star Trek film that I had from since I could remember. And we got other Star Trek films along the way, but that was the one that I had the longest. And I think I was just oversaturated by it. I saw it like 550 million times. Um, but it, late, lately, I've been coming back around to it. And when I when I rewatch Star Trek, and I usually start at the beginning and and you know of the films, I'm <laughs> rewatching all of Star Trek as a chore. But but I start like at the beginning of the films, and I'll go through them, and then I I find myself looking forward to coming back to this film. That that's kind of how my opinion of this has changed over time, and and it's really because the story really is delightful. When when you stop and you think about what the story is. The story, um, it does not have a central villain, or certainly the villains are faceless. Let's put it that way. The villains don't really have a face. They're not really brought to the fore, and we never do battle with them. Um, I don't think, uh, no, no, no ships in this film fire any phasers or torpedoes. A phaser is fired briefly to melt a door lock, and I think that's pretty much all the phaser we get in this movie. And so there's really no fighting with the villains. And instead, what this film does is it takes our heroes and makes them fish out of water, and then literally, and then it, um, and then it takes this woman that we've never seen before, and it makes her our heroine in in a lot of ways, and that is a really delightful take on um on on an unconventional Star Trek story, and I and I think that's what makes it so lovable, is um is is just those elements, and like I said, it does continue elements from the previous films as well. So Kirk is, uh, still very interested in or I say interested, he, he doesn't shy away from the consequences of his actions. He's always acting uh, with the best interests of his crew or his people mm -hmm. or his planet yep. in mind. Yes, sometimes he breaks some rules, he disobeys some orders, but he always comes back at the end of it after he's incidentally saved the day and he faces those consequences. So at the beginning of this film, they are prepared to leave Vulcan and go back to Earth and face the consequences that are results of their actions in the search for Spock, where they sabotaged a ship, they stole the Enterprise. Uh, all these things happened because Kirk wanted to go rescue or potentially rescue Spock. Fortunately, they were successful. But he, at the end of it, is ready to go back and he's ready to accept all the blame, accept all the consequences, and uh, not shy away from that. He He's a good captain or a good admiral in that way because he, he isn't uncertain about those kind of things. He doesn't uh, stand to the side or try and make excuses or say, I did this because this. Yes, he has those reasons, but still, he's there and he is ready to accept any punishment that might come his way. Yeah, well like the president says to him at the end of the of the film, uh before we before we, they turn around the punishment into a reward. <laughs> he says that when he said when he thinks it's still going to be a punishment, the the president says to him, "I'm sure the admiral will recognize the necessity of keeping discipline in in any chain of command." And Kirk just simply says, "I do, sir." Um and and so he's always like like you said, he's always willing to accept the responsibility for what he's done. He he had no choice to do what he had done. And and, and lesser men like like me, perhaps, and maybe maybe you, I don't know. Um, but we we might we might try to find what well, I just did what was right. And I don't care like I did what I thought was necessary to save my people. And no, he he knew what he was doing was illegal and wrong, and he's now ready to face up to that. And he was on his way to face up to that when it became time to save the the planet again. And so he takes a little detour and saves the planet, and then he's right back at the accepting responsibility for what he did and the destruction of Starfleet property, you know? Um, one of the notes that I wrote down is Kirk always does what is right. He, he's kind of a—he's almost like a one-note character in that way, 
But he's like my favorite one-note character of all time. He never wavers in doing what is right and sacrificing his good for the good of anyone else. Which, incidentally, is kind of what made Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, so poignant, is when, you know, Spock basically took Kirk's philosophy and, and said the good of the many outweigh the—I mean, that's a Vulcan philosophy, but it's also been Kirk's philosophy. The good of the many outweighs the good of the, of the few or the one— and that's always been Kirk's philosophy is I'm going to do whatever is right by everyone else because I'm, you know, I'm just one guy. And that's what made Star Trek II poignant. And here it is again. Like, it's just Kirk. That's just who he is. Yeah, I was going to point that out as well. He, he just is so eager to do the right thing all the time when he's on his way back to Earth with his crew to face the consequences of the search for Spock. He gets the distress signal. Earth is falling apart into disaster. Things are going to crap. And he springs immediately into action. They come up with a plan and they're off. Right. It wasn't even a question. It wasn't like, are we going to do this? It was like, okay, let's let's go figure this out. Let's fix it. Right. And you, you mentioned him being a one note character. And I agree. And that's certainly not a con because I feel the same way about Captain America, for example. He mm-hmm. what makes yeah. Captain America so interesting is that he is so steadfast in his beliefs and in his morals and in the way he views the world. Yes, for some characters, you want a little bit of internal conflict. But I think that the rare character that has no internal conflict and is doing his best to remain steadfast in a world that is corrupt uh, or uh, amongst people who may take the selfish path. uh, That's just as compelling. And Kirk really brings that to the forefront in this movie and in this trilogy. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I love how easily he falls into the slang of the time. Once they reach the eighties, he he fits in so naturally, um, and at the same time, he's paired with Spock, who isn't quite the Spock that he was in Wrath of Khan towards the end of his life, quote unquote. About those colorful metaphors we discussed, Spock, I don't think you should try using them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you just haven't got the knack of it. Yeah, he just hasn't figured it out yet. And uh, it's just a, a fun pair. It's almost like a buddy cop kind of thing where they're so yes. opposite from each other and they have this natural back and forth that adds a lot of comedy to the situation. Yeah, I mean, one of the most comedic moments in the film, to me, is the one where nobody's saying anything. I mean, well, Jillian's, like, giving her spiel, and they're down at the bottom at the whale tank looking in, and all of a sudden, you know, Kirk's hand is on his forehead. It's on his, like, he's doing the, the almost the cartoonish comical, like, hands on his cheeks. <gasps> you know, like, trying to figure these, <laughs> you know, seeing Spock up there. <laughs> and then, uh, and then of course, the little old lady, maybe he's singing to that man. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the, I mean, the film has a lot of comedy, but to me, I think that may be the most comedic moment of the film i liked that one a lot and i liked when she asked if they like italian they're in the truck and both yeah. kirk and spock are sort of stuttering over yes or no or maybe and kirk eventually says yes you do and spock turns and says yes <laughs> and that, that, that's and that was the right after it. they had discussed that was right after they had discussed um stretching the truth or lying and you know of course you know spock you can exaggerate don't you remember you exaggerate he's like the hell i don't <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, any other thoughts on Kirk? No, I mean, that's, that's really it for Kirk. I mean, he's, he's one of my favorite characters. And I, and I think, like you said, he, um, I guess I do have another thought because like he, I think what's appealing to Kirk, especially now is looking at a man who is never, who never wavers. And that's something that we sorely need and lack maybe in our modern time. And that's why such a character is so appealing because so many people are driven by, convenience and what is convenient to propel me to this height and what is convenient to get me here and there. And and that's not the way Kirk thinks at all. And that's what makes Kirk such a hero. And that's something that I think is very appealing to us in our modern time. Well, I also loved how they closed off his arc that started at the very beginning of the Wrath of Khan, where he was, uh, what was it, his 40th birthday? Um, 50th. 50th. Okay. 50th birthday. He is feeling old. He's an admiral now. He's not really doing much space exploration, if any. And it's this. Flying a computer console. Right. And now he (laughs) is going off on this training program. And that's when con attacks and all that kind of stuff happens. And now they've gone on this arc over these three films. And at the end of it, he is, quote, demoted to captain so that he can continue mm-hmm. to do what he does best, which is to that commandeer which he has demonstrated unswerving ability. Yes, I, 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 I was <laughs> big old smile when that happened in the movie because I, I really didn't see it coming. Um, I mean, I guess I did in a certain respect, but well, still it was it was yeah. a pleasant surprise. 
And but then, like, how else was that? How else was this going to end? You know, right. we're not gonna like, oh, you get to go off to the dilithium mines now and mine, you know, dilithium for the rest of your life. Like, that's not gonna happen, <laughs> right? And then even bigger smile when uh, they're approaching their new ship and oh, it's the rebuilt yes. Enterprise. That was that was so cool. But the the film completes that arc. He he starts off old, weary, uh, wanting for the adventure of his youth, and at the end of it, here he is off to captain the enterprise again uh to to go where no one has gone before it's Mm -hmm. a great end to his character over this trilogy yeah agreed absolutely now what about spock in this film okay spock i think spock probably has the best arc in star trek or one of the best Uh, well i don't know the doctor in star trek voyager has a really good arc but but this is a really spock like over the series has a really good arc And we've seen a much longer version of the arc that we witness in this movie. Like, the entirety of Star Trek, as regards to Spock, is him figuring out who he is and becoming comfortable in his own skin as a half-Vulcan, half-human. But here, because his mind has been retrained in the, you know, purely in a Vulcan way, um, you know, he's emotionless and led by logic again, and and here we are, he's learning how to be a human again now because he's going with his shipmates to offer testimony because he was there. You know, you do this for friendship. No, I do it because I was there. And, and so we see him relearning what his human side is like, and he has to learn again to be comfortable in his own skin. We saw in Star Trek II a very different Spock than we'd ever seen before. He was comfortable in his skin. He was bantering with Kirk as, you know, more than ever with McCoy and, and you know, uh, Jim, you know, you take the ship. You forget I don't have an ego to bruise. He's very comfortable with himself. And here he is, again, doesn't know who he is, and he's trying to figure that out again. And by the end of the film... We see again that he's finally at peace with himself, and he he perfectly blends this you know this logic when he's speaking with Sarek, and then he tells he tells Sarek, "Tell my mother I feel fine," which gets you know the the raised eyebrow from Sarek. Um, yeah, so we finally see him at peace with himself. So this is like an encapsulation of the arc as a whole that he's gone through as a character, right? And, after, and it's a really good one. Yeah, right after his regeneration, he's basically a computer. He's back to all facts and logic and no emotion. He doesn't understand the human part of him, which is in contrast with Kirk's eulogy at the after his death, where he says that uh, his spirit was the most human. Um, yes. And he's yes. just forgotten all of that. And over the course of this film, the, the more time he spends with the crew, he sees Chekhov get hurt. Um, he, he starts to make those human decisions again that aren't necessarily based in logic. Um, and eventually he has to start making guesses, which, oh no, guesses? Why would I make guesses when I have facts and I have math and I have yes, numbers? Yes. And uh, unfortunately, he can't rely on those anymore. And so when yeah. they Guess? You, Spock? That's extraordinary. <laughs> yes, because it, it's... Uh, as is it Bones who points it out, says Spock's guesses are better than most other people's facts. Yes, yes. And it it's just him returning back to the Spock that we did know in Wrath of Khan. And having undergone that adventure with his friends, he, he rediscovers his human side and he does feel fine. And I thought that was a great way to end the arc over this film where at the beginning he was at the computer and the computer recognizing that he's half human asks him how does he feel and he doesn't understand the question because he hasn't experienced humanity yet right yeah and there's another completion of kind of an arc that um really in the first uh well it's a second pilot of star trek spock essentially suggests to kirk that he may need to kill a, a character named gary mitchell <laughs> and and uh Kirk is like, my, that's cold, Spock. You know, it's like, well, it's logic, whatever. And and here, in, in, instead of, you know, saying the logical thing, which is, well, I suppose might be the logical thing. We have to leave Chekhov behind. He says, Jim, we must go and get Chekhov. You know, and, and Kirk's like, well, is that is that the logical thing to do, Spock? And he's, no, but it is the human thing to do. Which that always just kind of gives me goosebumps, you know. I don't know why. I, I'm, I'm a I'm a softie, but... <laughs> but uh, <laughs> You know, it's it's that completion of that arc of, of bringing Spock to the ultimate point in his journey, I think. And then we do meet Jillian, who you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And I liked her a lot, too. She she had to grow on me a little bit. But uh, we learn that she's passionate about her work. She's willing to do anything to protect her whales, including picking up a couple of strange men, one of whom dove into the <laughs> tank with the whales. Um She's got a tire iron right where she can get at it, Chad. <laughs> right. I love that she's skeptical and she doesn't implicitly trust Kirk and Spock. 
Um, oh, well, I knew space was going to come into this sooner or later. <laughs> right. She's so sarcastic <laughs> in that moment. Yes, yes. And she only really turns to him out of desperation, still not out of belief, desperation, right, yes. because she thinks that maybe this guy who's been telling such far-fetched tales can help like he says he can. I don't think she believed until Kirk beamed her up. Exactly. I don't don't think she believed before that. Right. I I have in my notes, circumstances reveal the truth to her. And it's that moment she's she's beamed onto the ship and it's just, oh, okay, this is real. You were telling the truth. Well, lucky me, because that means you really can help. I just had a hunch. And uh, I, I love that she is skeptical and has Kirk has to earn that trust by giving proof. Yeah, uh, Catherine Hicks is wonderful. I don't think I've ever seen her in anything else, which is to my shame, because I think she, at least here, she certainly is a wonderful actress. And I, you just, from the first time you see her on screen, you just love her to death. And I'm sad, Chad, that she was never in any, because they set it up perfectly. She could have been in future Star Trek, but she never was. They never brought her back. And that's, I think, to the to the franchise's uh, detriment. I, I think she would have brought a lot to the franchise to to have her in a couple more Star Trek films, or, or at least one, or, or something. I don't know. Yeah, I was. But curious this is about when that. I when I mentioned at, when I, I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that, or when we started talking about uh, Star Trek Four, that this film instead of presenting us with a strong villain and you know giving us something to fight, like so they presented us with a strong heroine, uh, someone who was some somebody whose side we could be on. And we could we could root with her to save the whales and that sort of thing. And and this is this was definitely one of the best casting choices probably in history. I think, if you say so, I I did really like her. I think uh, she she brought a, a different kind of energy. It was nice to have a little bit of twentieth century mixed in with these twenty third century people, um, mm-hmm. and it was just a way to. Uh, this is a cliche to ground our characters and introduce them into this world and give them that sort of connecting point uh, to to find the whales and to uh, I don't know to to find the whales and to get them back to where they need to be in order to save yes. Earth. Yep. Um, then we have Bones, who I, I don't have a whole lot to say about him, but uh, he's just Bones. He's Bones, but at the beginning of the film, he's trying to reconnect with Spock. Um, still trying to put that that green goblin, uh, green blooded goblin. Forgive, That's what it is. Forgive me, Doctor. I'm receiving a lot of distress calls. I don't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he McCoy has always been basically the soul of. There's kind of like this this trio, trio right in in Star Trek. It's Bones, Kirk's you know Kirk Spock and Bones, and Bones has always been the soul of that trio. And there's really no nothing new here, but it's just played like. As it's so funny, as uh, you know, McCoy was always kind of curmudgeonly, but like it's become like a lovable curmudgeonliness that as as time has gone on, where before it seemed like cantankerous, and and then toward the end of his run on Star Trek, it was just really this lovable curmudgeonly. Like you knew what his response was going to be, and it's almost like he does it for laughs, even though he he wants to be a curmudgeon, he just does it for laughs, you know. Yeah, I, I so, love that yeah. he's trying to have this this philosophical discussion over what it means to die and to come back with Spock, and Spock just doesn't you mean see the I logic have to in it. Die to discuss your insights on death, <laughs> right? We don't we don't have a, a common experience or uh, the the frame of reference we don't have right, yes. together. Uh, I, I thought that was so funny, and I also really love the scene where they go to the hospital to rescue Chekhov, and his reactions to 20th century medicine. Uh, he gives this <laughs> woman a dialysis. Here. This woman's going into dialysis, and he gives her a, a pill, and later she pops back up, and, oh, I grew a new kidney. It's fully functioning, and the doctors are astounded, and uh, they, they have no idea what happened. It, it's funny that yeah. that they bring in this future science to the 20th century because he sees it as so barbaric. And uh, Scotty does sort of the same thing, uh, pretending to be a professor to get the the materials they need to build the tank for the whales. Transparent aluminum, Chad. Transparent aluminum. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that means. Right. But him trying to talk to the computer. I told you this before we started recording. Him trying to talk to the computer through voice commands (laughs) and then... uh, Hello, computer. <laughs> and then he gives him the mouse, and he says, oh, oh, thank you, of course. And he, he tries to do the same thing into the mouse, and of course that doesn't work either. Uh, I, that was probably the moment in the film that made me laugh the most. I, I had a lot of fun yeah. with that scene. Yeah, and it's clear that uh, James Doohan was having so much fun. Like, this may be the most fun that James Doohan has ever had in his role as Scotty. Like, he was just hamming it up. And he wasn't, He, you know, I don't know. He just, he loved it. He, he really loved playing that role, I think. Were there any other characters that you wanted to point out and talk about? 
Um, I, it, not really. I mean, you know, Chekhov and Uhura and Sulu, I mean, they're there and they get a little more to do than usual, but they're, they're always like the, the secondary of the main characters. Right. And, you know, Uhura got a lot to do in Star Trek three and that was nice. And here, I think they decided that Chekhov didn't have enough to do in Star Trek three. So they gave him a, a, an arc here in Star Trek four. You know, it was a funny kind of nice character moment when he's kind of in a delirious state and they ask him his name and rank and he says, uh, you know, Pavel Chekhov, rank admiral, you know. Um, <laughs> that, and that was a nice little thing for Chekhov. But I always wanted more from those secondary main characters. But at the same time, I acknowledge that there's just not time to, to because there's seven main characters. And in a two hour film, there's just not going to be time to visit all of them, you know, the way we want to. Right. And. In a film that relies on an ensemble cast like this, I mean, this is a crew of people. They work together and have always worked together uh, in the history of the original series. And I, I like that, yes, we have arcs for a couple of characters, but a couple of them are, are just the characters we know, we know and love. It's nice to have that consistency from film to film. And mm-hmm. maybe in this film, this character gets a little bit of an arc while everybody else stays the same. And in this film, it's a different character. And in this film, Chekhov and Uhura basically just they're Chekhov and Uhura and that's perfectly okay. Well, and and speaking of of the way you you phrased that reminded me, if you talk to people who kind of grew up watching Star Trek, uh, you know, back in the sixties and even seventies when it was in syndication, like they talk about how, you know, you've got, especially toward the end of the seventies and stuff, you got the cold war and all this stuff going on, but they tuned into Star Trek and it was these characters that were reliable and dependable and like rocks. And, you know, that's kind of who they are. These people are who they are. Yeah. Perfectly. Okay. Um, now, I have a few interesting thoughts about the music. What do you think about, uh, what is it, Rosenman's score for yes, this one? Yes, Leonard Rosenman. So um, I have to admit that for a long time, I did not like the score as much as I wanted to or as much as I do now. Um, and the reason is, for some, for whatever reason, it never seemed Star Trek-y to me. Um, and, I, you know, I think mostly that's because I just never listened to the score on its own. I always listened to it in the context of the film, and... Lately, I've acquired the score, and I've got the extended edition, and so um, I've been listening to it a lot more, and it's really grown on me. It, it is, a, it is sub- certainly its own thing. It doesn't resemble anything else in Star Trek um, at all, uh, whereas you know, with James Horner, you could tell that even though he was doing something different from Jerry Goldsmith or even uh, Alexander Courage, who came before him, um, he was still sticking into the kind of the modes of what Star Trek music is expected to be, and he did really good at it, but Leonard Rosenman... In fact, what happened is he came back with a score that sounded much more Star Trek. And um, Leonard Nimoy said, no, I I want something a little different. And so then he went back and he tweaked all that. And he came back with the score that we know now. And I I have to say, I have begun, it has grown on me a lot. And there's there's a lot to like here. And there's certainly a lot of Star Trek in the score. You know, you you get the bombastic, you know, you know, you get that throughout and and various things and you get nods to the original score, certainly. Um, yeah, I, I really like it. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, because you're coming, you don't have nearly as much experience as Star Trek. So what are your thoughts of it from your experience? I noticed pretty early on that it was noticeably different than anything Goldsmith or Horner had done so far. Not necessarily in a bad way. Um, but a lot of it to me seemed pretty non-Trek until the ending at least. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there were actually large stretches of the film where I noticed there wasn't a lot of music. Um, we got opening themes at the very beginning, but then the next time I really noticed it was when Chekhov was trying to escape from the nuclear whistle. Um, (laughs) no, I'm sure there were a couple of moments in between there, but those were the, the two big moments that I noticed in the first part first half of the film or so um but i liked it i mean there 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 was uh the scene where they were chasing the whaling ship towards the end that kind of reminded me a bit of william's score for jaws a tiny bit Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the end credits itself is a lot closer to the star trek that we know and aside from the main theme there's not really any familiar themes that i recognized at least again i don't have a whole lot of trek experience but i thought the music was great i i liked it um I thought it was a little bit of a shame that Horner wasn't able to finish out the trilogy um, because he he developed themes from Wrath of Khan into Star or Search for Spock. Like there was continuity yeah. there, and then all of a sudden it was gone. But if you look at the events of the films, I think if there was one that needed to be different or was going to be different, this is the one that makes sense, just because of the how different the film itself is. Yeah, I love Horner, and I think that he did a spectacular job with Star Trek Two. 
And you're right, I would have liked to have seen him come back, and I'm a little sad that he didn't. But I think I think the reason he didn't get invited back was because he did kind of a lackluster job with Star Trek Three. And I think that, um, you know, I think maybe for whatever reason, maybe he was too busy. He reused a little too much of the Aliens theme along with the previous Star Trek themes when he could have been developing more original ideas, I don't, for whatever reason. And, you know, Le- Rosenman was a friend of Leonard Nimoy, so <laughs> there you go. Um, but I do think that, that, that Rosenman's music does a really good job of fitting the new lighter tone that this film brings to the table, right? It's, it didn't, to, to have Horner's previous score, uh, in any way attached to this film would have would have brought a lot more gravity than I think the film needed because um, I think this film is much needs much less gravity it needs a lighter tone and that's what the score brought but at the same time this the score certainly does have moments of drama and interest um, and the main title sequence as you've noted is actually quite good I I really enjoy once you kind of put out of your mind oh this doesn't sound like what I'm used to once you put that out of your mind it is a really good title sequence and of course he does some really fun stuff like Chekhov's Run is the name of the track that's a lot of fun the Hospital Chase is the name of another track that's really fun but then you've got the drama of a track called the Whaler that's when the the whole sequence when they see the whaling ship approaching the whales and they're descending you know down to to intercept the harpoon and that is a really dramatic um, you know really good theme or um, track that I really like. And then, of course, I still get, you know, goosebumps when the music plays over the reveal of the Enterprise A, um, where they've, they've got the the the, um, the new Enterprise, and it's it's just like the old one, and it's still, you know, I'm just, like I said, I'm a softie for that sort of thing, and the music just gets me right there as I'm seeing the, and I still think, you know, this is such a nerd in me, but I still think that this version of the Enterprise, the one that we saw in the movies, the original series movies, is the loveliest version of the Enterprise, so... There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm I like the music. I, I really do, and I'm I need to explore Star Trek music as a whole. Anyways, I mean I, I'm familiar with Michael Giacchino's stuff for the the Abrams verse, but yeah. uh, I'd love to go back and listen to more of Goldsmith and Horner, and then those that that follow them in the 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 preceding films. But uh, like I said, this is different here, and I think that's good in a lot of ways because this is a different film and yep. Yep. It, it, it's not big space battle. It's uh, earth on the earth in the eighties chasing whales. So it, it's appropriate that it's different and I like it. Yeah. The thing I'll say is just as a side note, you're wanting to explore more Star Trek music. What's interesting is in the original series, you know, you had Alexander courage did the new, the main theme and then he did, I think a bunch of different music and various things that were then reused throughout the rest of the series. I don't think any of the rest of the series got any new scores. They just reused various bits and jingles and, and you know, the same fight music is used for every single fight scene and that sort of thing. But, but then um, after that, you've got, of course, original scores for each of the films, and every single episode of Star Trek after that had an original score. So there's a lot of good music in Star Trek, and a lot of it I've not—I don't even know where to find and haven't even explored. Um, so, but you can find some of the TNG music and some of Voyager's music and some of Deep Space Nine's music out there, uh, in addition to the films. And it's—it's it's really it's a lot of good stuff, a lot of orchestral scoring and, and really good work. So, just a side note. I know you're into music, so I thought I'd mention <laughs> that to you. Well, thank you. I'll definitely have to look into that a little bit more. Now let's go to relevance. What are some of the themes, or one of the themes? Uh, that you take away from this film? So I, I really, one of the reasons I love this film is I like the idea that something that man did or is doing in our time period, essentially, I mean, a few years before us, but, but you know, back in the 1980s um, and, and on into the future, you would assume that whaling went on. And as far as I know, humpbacks are not extinct. And uh, that is attributed a lot to this film. But like the idea that man is currently doing something that then comes back to bite us in the 2380s, uh, 2280s, um, and, and that that is a theme that I think is relevant to because, you know, the people that are alive today, they can't seem to see the big picture five minutes in front of them sometimes. And so it's not hard to believe that we would do something so drastically that would affect us in such a way that might might result in, in a you know, very dangerous and destructive situation for our planet. And so that's one of the themes I think that resonates with me. I wrote that down as well. I said preservation. You know, the reason they need time travel in the first place is because mankind killed off the humpback whales. They don't have uh, these creatures that would essentially be their saving grace in their time period, but they don't have them anymore. So this is their only means of communicating with the probe that is destroying everything on Earth. And if the movie teaches us that if mankind had moved on from whaling and had instead relied on 
synthetic means to obtain the same materials that don't involving killing creatures, then this crisis would have been averted from the start. And so whaling is the example given, but I think that could apply to a whole range of subjects when it comes to preservation, whether it's other species, whether it's fuels, whether it's this or that. There's a lot that we can take away from looking in the future. Like, what is the outcome of what we're doing now? Consider that and then make decisions and adjust what we're doing now in order to prevent or to uh, make something better for the future. So I, I like that one as well. And then for the trilogy as a whole, there was this theme of self-sacrifice, um, whether it was Spock sacrificing himself in Wrath, uh, Wrath of Khan, then it was Kirk and crew sacrificing their futures to save Spock in Search for Spock. And now those same people are time traveling and attempting difficult space maneuvers in order to get these whales <laughs> to save future mankind. And then later in the film, Kirk nearly drowns himself to help the whales escape the, the sinking ship. It It's a theme that's important to this film in particular because it goes against logic, which is something that uh, Spock is having to relearn. Self-preservation is a logical choice. But the emotional choice is to do what you can to rescue those you care about. And obviously they care about their planet. They care about their federation. And all of those people are dying because of this probe. And so they do what they can immediately to put themselves at risk in order to save the, the many. The, the needs of the many outweigh the, few, uh, the, the needs of the few. So yep. that was that, that same continuing theme in this film. Mm-hmm. Any others? Yeah, that, that's that's really it. I mean, it's a lot of fun to see them back in the '80s, and to, you know, as soon as you get back in the '80s, you hear the uh, the synth pop kick in the the uh, the music, and, uh, and and that's all fine. But like the the strongest takeaway is really just you know don't don't destroy yourselves. Like look at the big picture, you know. Right, um, and then I mean yeah. there there is the theme of teamwork I think, which is present in all oh, of sure, Star Trek. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's not new to this film. Because what's great about Star Trek is that each series focuses on a crew that works together to overcome obstacles. And in this one, our six crew members split up into pairs to tackle separate things. Sorry? Seven crew members. Oh, seven. Who did I miss? Let's see. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Sulu, um, Chekhov, and Scott. Oh, that's right. Sulu went with... uh, Yeah, okay. Um, seven, my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get it right. I don't, I don't want you to get angry emails. from Texas. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for looking out for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when crew members get left behind, there's always a rescue effort in which some place themselves at risk or in danger in order to reunite the team. It's the same idea of self-sacrifice, yes. but then in the end, when they are all standing at trial, uh, ready to face those consequences, Spock decides to stand with his shipmates because yes. they are a team because uh, the, these are his crewmates and he mm-hmm. is going to stand by them. And it, I, I thought that was a, a great way to sum that up was Spock standing with them, despite not being among the accused. Yes, yeah, and that that was a that was a strong, um, you know, the, the camaraderie that the crew feels, you know, and that's another part of the, the just slightly, just a little bit of a goosebump, you know, when, when Spock walks up there, when he's he walks from the from the bleachers for I don't know what they're, you know, when you're, when you're sitting observing whatever, he walks from the area where everyone's observing this uh, kind of, uh, you know, thing, and he says, "Bring out the accused," and Spock comes and stands with them. And then he says, Captain Spock, you do not stand accused. And he says, Mr. President, I stand with my shipmates. Um, and that, that's that's a little bit of a, yeah, okay, this is Spock. Spock is back, and he's standing with his friends, you know. Right. It's further evidence of his growth in this film, because at the beginning, mm-hmm. he was only going because he was there. And now he's standing with them, not just sitting in the audience ready to testify. He's standing with his shipmates. So, uh, teamwork. Yeah. You can tell how many times I've seen this film by the fact that I can... I can quote start quoting at any point in the movie and pretty much nail it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I was I'm not really necessarily good at <laughs> in general. So yeah, I've still only seen it the one time, but I'm excited to. I, I know I keep saying this, but explore more Trek and to rewatch this trilogy and to uh, just explore more of this universe in general because I really do like Star Trek, and it's just finding the time to sort of go yeah. chronological in order of release. So. 
Yeah, so the, the next when we get together next to talk about Star Trek, we have to then review the second best film in the franchise. Um, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll definitely do that. And with that, I think that is the end of the 66th episode of Cinescope. Thank you again, TJ, for joining me tonight. Anytime you want to talk about Star Trek, day or night, just call on me, dude. Okay, uh, noted. <laughs> uh, contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast and at pod on Twitter. Please remember to go over to iTunes, rate, review, maybe even subscribe, or the podcast app on your iOS device. And if you have any feedback or ideas, you can email me, the podcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that to contact me regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love that you'd like to talk about, let me know. Now, TJ, where can people find you online? Uh, best place to keep up with me is my preferred social media network, which is Twitter. So you can find me uh, on Twitter at TJ Draper Pro. Um, and uh, if you're interested in my past podcast, go to moviebite.com or um, uh, what's, <laughs> no, where did we host Nightowl.fm. Nightowl.fm slash retake. There you go. See, it's been months. <laughs> So, so those are the two places you can find my historical archives of, of podcasts. And uh, I think there's some enjoyable ones out there. So certainly, certainly those are the best places to get in touch with me. Yeah, I have gone back on occasion and listened to our stints on Movie Bite together, uh, whether it was related to a film that was about to come out or I forgot what I thought about a certain film. And so I go back and listen and uh, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy mm-hmm. listening to those, going back to my roots, as it were. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Uh, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And don't forget about my other podcast, An American Workplace, where we talk about NBC's The Office. And you can find that where podcasts can be found and WorkplacePodcast.com. And the show notes and contact information for this show can be found at TheCinescopePodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Once again, TJ, thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you about movies. Same. And thank you everyone for listening to episode 66. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 67. Have fun and celebrate movies. Bye.